and welcome into the Cultural Coven. I'm your host, Nicola Roy. I hope this finds you well. It's an incredibly beautiful sunny day here in Edinburgh. I'm not really sure what the Scottish weather thinks it's up to, quite frankly. It's all a bit confusing, but we'll take it. This week I have a wonderful guest for you. It is the former Maka of Scotland, our national poet, playwright and adapter of Molière's plays, And I'm not sure how happy she'll be at me saying this, but it's true. She is a bit of a national treasure. It is, of course, the brilliant Liz Lockhead. Like most Scottish children, I was first introduced to Liz's poems and plays at school, and I was immediately drawn to her strong female characters, her wit, and her ability to use words like weapons. I then met Liz not long before I played Agnes in Educating Agnes, her version of Molière's School for Wives at the Lyceum Theatre in Edinburgh in 2011. And I've since worked with Liz on a few other occasions. But more than anything, like Siobhan Redman touched on in her episode, I too feel privileged that Liz has taken me in and become a great friend. And here in the coven, Liz chats about her plays, her attention to detail, her brand of creativity. We get a couple of her poems. Oh, and she tells us about a colourful chat with Her Majesty the Queen. You're in for a treat. Enjoy. Nicola Roy's The Cultural Coven is brought to you with an association support from the Lyceum Theatre and the Stephen Dunn Theatre Fund and is produced by Emotion Theatre Company. Hi Liz and welcome into the Cultural Coven. I wish I could be seeing you in person today but you're in Glasgow and I'm in Edinburgh so we're doing it virtually. But it's a beautiful sunny day here and it kind of reminds me of this time last year or just over a year ago when yourself and myself and the brilliant Joyce Faulkner, Andy Clark and Harry Ward were out in Australia doing your version of Tartuffe. And then we arrived back in Glasgow Airport just a week before lockdown. Just about a week, yeah. And uh, yeah, it was just very strange, and it hadn't been, it hadn't been getting taken that seriously in Australia comparatively. No, we'd all been out at a great big um, event in the in the botanic gardens. You know, yeah. it was the opposite of socially distanced the night before we we came back. So it was very very strange to come back and realise that things were. We're sort of a different stage here. But I know. I mean, to give some yeah. the listeners some context, we were out there doing the cut-down version of Liz Lockhead's uh, adaptation of Molière's Tartuffe. And we were in Adelaide for five weeks. And incredibly, the show ended up winning the Critics' Choice Award, which was particularly wonderful as it's a play in Scots and being performed on the other side of the world. But that is the Liz Lockhead magic. Um, the people over there were incredible and really hospitable, and we had some great times. Remember that uh, barbecue, Liz, that we went to? Yes. We were dancing for Scotland. Wonderful. Yes, we had a wonderful barbecue. I mean, people were so lovely. Really? I mean, they were great. They were, the Australians were fantastic. And I got to hug a koala bear. Yes. Joyce. Joyce Faulkner sent me a photograph um, the other day and I, it was, I could see the koala bear in it and then I finally saw myself underneath the tree with my mad green hat and my sunglasses on. <laughs> but I'm so glad I went. You know, I was I wondering whether to go because it costs a lot of money to go to Australia and, you know, yeah. blah, blah. But, I mean, I'm glad because I got a holiday last year that, you know, because after that I've not been anywhere. No. I've not, I, was, I was in Edinburgh one day last summer. Remember sometime during August last year there was a sort of slight easing and yes. you were allowed to you were allowed to go. I remember it was the 19th because it was my, my pal Andy's birthday, which is always a day during the Edinburgh Festival when we don't go to Edinburgh Cultural, we just get drunk. Yay. We get drunk as lords. So um, 
Uh, there was no festival going on last year, but I went over and, and did the getting drunk bit with uh, with her on her birthday that, that time last year. And that was just a, a single day. And then a, a train back to uh, Glasgow and thinking, this is okay because it was the first bit of public transport I'd been on. I hope to come next week to Edinburgh. Why not? Because we're allowed... Well, we're allowed next week. Oh, yeah, we could have some gin uh-huh. and sidelers. Can we do that? Well, we could. And next week I'm getting my second vaccine. I'm getting a haircut and my Pfizer jab in the same day next week. So <laughs> life gets exciting. And so after that, I'm going to get on a train um, from down the road. There's a train that goes from a station just really down the road from, from my house that can get me to Edinburgh by the slow route, you know, by yes. a Bathgate and, you know, and, and all these... Um, we West Lothian towns and things like that. Takes a bit longer to get there than uh, via Queen Street, but you know it's lovely. I go through the bit of Scotland that I grew up in. I go through, you know, the bit between Glasgow and Edinburgh, which is my my calf country, oh, as they call it. Was it. Motherwell yeah. you grew up in? Was it Liz? Yes, I grew up. Um, yeah, but north of Motherwell, so not far from where this line goes. Um, you know, it goes via Airdrie and places like that. So, yes, I'm a, a Lanarkshire girl. And how was uh, it also, growing up in Lanarkshire? How was it? Well, uh, my friend Michael Mara, my late great friend Michael Mara, used to say, poor Liz, she grew up in darkest sectaria. But it, it wasn't really, well, I mean, it was in a sense in that um, ours was the Prodi village next to the Catholic village next door to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I mean, both of them were equally Catholic and Protestant, but there was only a Prodi school, well, a... a a, um, a public school in our village and only a Catholic school in the next one. So there was a bit of toing back and fro. But my parents were incredibly, they were both Christians, but they were incredibly against bigotry and sectarianism. They were passionately about Brilliant. that. You know, they'd both gone through the war and, um, you know, met all kinds of people. They'd both been away. My dad had been away for six years, you know, in the war. Um before the war, he'd been called up and my mum had been uh, down there in the ATS for three or four years as well, um, down in, in Kent and had met all kinds of different people and, um, you know, and felt very passionately, uh, you know, anti-sectarianism. Mm-hmm. I grew up in, a, you know, in 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 what, Lanark- rural industrial Lanarkshire, really, because it was quite near Motherwell, the steelworks that used to, you know, Red Sky at night was the steelworks. It wasn't um, uh, Shepherd's Delight. Um, <laughs> uh, Were they supportive of your um, path into writing? Well, yes, absolutely. Um, but but um, worried in case I got upset and couldn't succeed in the things I was trying to do. But I wasn't trying to do anything particularly anyway. I've never, ever... Um, been ambitious to be a writer right. I've always just been ambitious to write this thing that I'm working on and it's only much later on that other people call you a writer and I mean now I would call myself a writer because I realize I've kept doing it all my life but I remember at first thinking oh I just want to do this thing and it's still like that you know I, I don't um uh you know I, I I'm not always creative it's not something that I can just turn on and on like a tap you know, but once it's turned on, I won't stop. I'll keep going. I'll burn the midnight oil doing something. But it's not something that I can improvise or just come up with or, you know. Yeah. Sometimes I do, you know, um, if I'm in the theatre, you know, working hard and I'm up to speed with something that we're doing. Yeah. I mean, you'll know about that because uh, uh, the last thing we worked on together um, as a play was What Goes Around. And I was still writing that during rehearsals um, because... Uh, 
you know, the permission to do it had come so late. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. That we were just that doing it. That was a great wee show and it was based it was, around Le It Bond. was terrific. It was. It was based around a couple of actors um, being forced to do this wonderful play called La Ronde. So you get little bits of their play, but you get their story and what happens in their lives and it goes right round in a circle. And so it's a sort of La Ronde exploded. And that's, I still think we might get to do that play again sometime because there's only two actors in it. And when we get up, if we get the theatre up and going again, uh, the theatres are going to be broke, aren't they? And um, uh, I've also rewritten, because the ending was never quite right. I was never quite happy with it. And I'm happy with it now. And I've got a great theatrical ending of, of it, which you'll have to help me with. Yes. Because I need some of your... Um, I need some of your... Uh, uh, emo- uh, your uh, is it emoji chat? experience with emojis and uh, <laughs> and uh, a texting chat. I don't think mm-hmm. I've ever had so many quick changes in my life. I've never went from uh-huh. a grand pants to an outfit so quickly because it was in the change. Basically, went from blackout lights up. I mean, you just had to super quick get changed, but it was fantastic. It was so much fun, and actually, it would make a wonderful play post lockdown. Well, it would because it's about sex, and who isn't interested in sex? Exactly, Liz. Sex sells. Let's not pretend. Um, yes, so- even though it's a very much a virtual activity for me now, writing about it. Um, <laughs> Uh, still and all, I'm still interested in the complications and things that it gives to life. And I hope I won't stop being able to, even if I've had to give up sex in my life, I won't give up writing about it. Thank goodness. <laughs> and uh, talking about it at least. You know, uh, I'll definitely be trying to chat up all the artistic directors I know to give us another gig with that. Um, because I've got a great idea for an ending now that's really bold and really theatrical. And something that um, myself and Siobhan Redmond talked about on the last episode is how you are not only a wonderfully detailed writer um, and you love to put us through our breathing paces by writing a long sentence. But what we, I do. <laughs> you do. But what we also <laughs> love is that you really care about the whole process right down to costume detail. And I remember a very in-depth conversation about um, having the right vintage look frilly knickers um, as Elmire on Tartuffe um, in the scene where Tartuffe hilariously whips them off her. Um, and mm-hmm. I love your attention to detail because I know that you will not let me go on stage looking like an arse, well, unless I'm meant to be looking like one. Does that detail come from your art school days, do you think? Uh, no, I don't think so. It's just um, things have to be right, you know, mm. don't they? Um, you know, uh, if you're writing a, a period play, um, they have to get the period right, you know. Although, you know, often um, I write things that are done in a different period from, from what the language does. Like, the first time I worked with you was in Educating Agnes, yes. which was a version of um, Molière's School for Wives, uh, Ecole des Femmes, uh, which um, uh, is, is one of his three great rhyming plays. And uh, the language in it is quite contemporary, and quite Scottish, and quite, but we deliberately wanted to do it in beautiful period costume. I mean, some of the designers I've worked with recently, I mean, Neil Murray, oh. who has done a couple of, he's just a genius. And, um, you know, he likes that I care about costume as much as he does. I love but, it um, as well, because some mm-hmm. writers don't, some writers, I'm not saying that they don't care, but sometimes they just don't maybe vocalise it. And I love that you do because the attention to detail really, really matters. And actually, I've had some of the most beautiful costumes in your plays, such as Lawman Molière and Educating Agnes, probably the most beautiful costumes I've ever worn. What Neil did in, for John Nunn Molière was great. 
I mean, it was the costumes that gave the world, because it was, as people said, a love letter to the theatre, you know, and and, um, I mean, he did the most beautiful period costumes because it was written, you know, in Scots and in rhyme, well, not bits of it were in rhyme, because I used bits of my rhyming uh, 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 plays, my rhyming versions of the Moliere as if they were it. It was a play that... I love to do and, and um, that I'm very proud of and I hope we'll get another outing sometime because I think it's very beautiful and um, uh, and it was just it was a magic thing to do because I had a great cast I mean Siobhan Redmond and Jimmy Chisholm together were just genius well, as the two leads I mean they were just uh, they know each other well enough for Siobhan to give him a scalp you know because he, he, he just uh, you know Jimmy Chisholm deserves a scalp very often <laughs> Um, he's, he's a, he's a delight. Oh, but he's such a delight. But he's such a genius. Nobody else could have done that part the way he did. But no, I don't understand people that work in the theatre and don't care about the whole process. Um, of course, you've got to give other people their due and their job to do it. Um, and of course, but um, uh, yeah, uh, I expect them to expect me to care. There's only certain directors that I really, really, really enjoy working with. Yes. Um, it's going to be lovely working with Michael Boyd again because he directed the very first thing I ever wrote for the theatre way back in, uh, gosh, 40 years ago, I think it is, because it was 19, 1981. And to give yeah. listeners some context, um, you're talking in regards to your um, play or your version of Medea, um, which mm-hmm. was meant to go on at Edinburgh International Festival last year, but due to the pandemic was cancelled. So hopefully it will go ahead this year. So you don't know yet, do you? Don't know for sure yet, no. I mean, last year I thought, oh no, it's not going to happen this year, but it never occurred to me that because, I mean, both the National Theatre of Scotland, what's not to like but working with the, your own National Theatre exactly. and the Edinburgh International Festival, because I really never thought I would ever, ever get an international festival production until I was dead. And then I wouldn't know anything about it because I don't believe in the afterlife. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Uh, how similar is your Medea to the classical Medea? Writing that Medea, you know, it was just... Um, my version of the Medea, and I mean, uh, Euripides uh, changed Medea from the stories of Medea that he had grown up with, and so on. So there are differences from the classical Medea. You know, I wasn't so interested in her as a a, a supernatural figure, a witch. I was interested in her as somebody who was willing to cash in on the fact she was regarded as scarily supernatural and perhaps a witch but you know was it all too real a a, a human being and that the marriage between her and uh, and and Jason was not the marriage between the demigod and human but the marriage between two human beings yeah. and it was all too human a story that they were telling I do like the play very much and I'm dying to see it again and I think having um a wonderful, um, beautiful black Medea who lives in Glasgow yes. will be wonderful. Yeah. Um, uh, and I'm dying to meet Adura. Uh, whenever Michael found her, he said, we found it. You know, and that was the last minute we were going to not do it at all um, if we couldn't find the right uh, somebody, the right person yes. that would do it in a different way. I mean, because Maureen Beatty, the original Medea, was completely wonderful. And, uh, you know, I was so lucky to have her yes. do it. Um, she was just magical. You know, whenever a play's done a long time later, it usually has all new cast, but you want to make it different mm-hmm. uh, in some way from 
what the original was. And uh, it's very much about a play about a woman who's in, in exile in a strange country. And, uh, you know, so um, I really thought that um, whenever I saw the photographs of Adura and Michael said how what a wonderful actress she was, yes. you know, he was saying, I would like you to meet her, you know, you're going to be. And I said, but, you know, we've got to decide today. And I said, if you're happy, Michael, go for it. Absolutely. So Liz, you're a, a playwright, a poet, uh, um, an artist, former Maka or National Poet of Scotland. You're someone who has inspired and influenced my career as well as many other actresses. Uh, you write brilliantly strong female characters and your plays are also on the syllabus for Scottish schools. So children learn of your work from an early stage. And I was chatting this morning to Jane Haney, another actress, and we, we both said, even though you're like family now, we keep every card you write to us over the years because it still feels so special to work with you. Does it ever register with you just how important you are in children's education up and down the land? No, for goodness sake, no. Um, the uh, curriculum, they've picked five poems and only some of them are the ones that I would pick okay. you know, to be done in schools. I mean, they miss out a poem uh, that I wrote when I was 18, that they should keep in. It's just called The Choosing. And it's just a poem that I wrote when I was young. But it means a lot to um, whenever, you know, sometimes somebody in a bus will say, did you write that poem about, you know, uh, the girl you were at school with? And uh, and they'll say, oh, I remember I liked that. I didn't like any other poems at school. The absolute idiots in the SQA have not picked that as one of the ones to be. They've picked five poems. And, you know, one of them is just not a poem that makes much sense to people that are not 35-year-old women, you know, who are um, victims of the dating game, you know. And I just think, well, you know, they've picked some of my good poems, but they've not picked a choosing, you know, the choosing. Yes. yes. Which, um, you know, uh, you know, it's just a poem. I feel like saying it. Just now, but go I'll say it. Go on, Liz, please wonder, go for it. I might be able to. I might be able to remember. It. I'll have to shut my eyes and just remember it. Anyway, you don't always write better when you get older. You know, you just keep. You have to keep doing it. Just keep doing it and hope you'll hit another good one. But um, I remember this is maybe the second or third poem I ever wrote, and I really did go to school with this girl Mary. I went to primary school with her, and she really did leave. Um, secondary school and go to junior secondary, you know. Um, this was way back in the times of, of um, selective education and so on. So anyway, I'll just read the poem, if I can remember it, and I should be able to. The choosing. We were first equal, Mary and I, with same coloured ribbons in mouse-coloured hair and with equal shyness, we curtsied to the lady councillor for copies of Collins' children's classics. First equal. Equally proud. Best friends too, Mary and I, a common bond in being cleverest, equal, in her small school, small class. I remember the competition for top desk or to read aloud the lesson at school service and my terrible fear of her superiority at sums. I remember the housing scheme where we both stayed, the same houses, Different homes where the choices got made. I don't know exactly why they moved, but anyway, they went. Something about a three apartment and a cheaper rent, but sometimes from the top deck of the high school bus, a glimpse among others on the corner, Mary's father, mufflered, contrasting strangely with the elegant greyhounds by his side. He 
didn't believe in high school education, especially for girls, or in forking out for uniforms. Ten years later, on a Saturday, I am coming from the library, sitting near me on the bus, Mary, with a husband who is tall, curly-haired, has eyes for no one else but Mary, her arms around the full-shaped vase that is her body. Oh, you can see where the attraction lies in Mary's life. Not that I envy her, really. And I am coming from the library with my arms full of books. I think of those prizes that were ours for the taking and wonder when the choices got made we don't remember making. Well, I did remember Don it, I think. Liz. <laughs> I, I love that poem. Because I, I wrote it in first year at school. I wrote it when I was 18. Uh, you know, I wrote about three poems at that point, And I remember thinking, I like doing this. I wrote them down the side of my sketchbooks. Mm. And, you know, and I thought, what, are, what is this? It doesn't go to the end of the line. So it's not a story. It's not a song because it doesn't have any uh, tune. And um, it doesn't have rhymes, really, except here and there. So it must be a sort of poem thing. And I kept, I kept thinking, I hope I'll write more of these. And I hope it won't go away. And it does go away and leave you for times. But, um, you know, you've got to fight and get it back. Do you write from things you know, Liz? Uh, I well, I write from things that I know or things that I've observed in other people, but changed. Although even then, I think I was changing things. I was only 18, so it was only four or five years later. And I must have been, so I was already imagining a person speaking that poem right. who wasn't quite me, you know, who was a person that went to the library all the time and, you know, did nothing but read books. And I used to read books and go out with boys at the same time. <laughs> so, you can do so, that, really? I was less, yes, I, I managed to do the same, you know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, so, yes, I mean, no, they're, they're never real. They're never, you can't write about something that doesn't interest you, that you've not observed in other people but the circumstances are so changed I make up things like mad you know I mean David Mamet's asked you know how did you um do that you know how do you write this and that and he says I make it up <laughs> so do I but you make it up out of things that you've noticed or sure. or that interest you deeply or that you see or whatever I loved that you were brilliantly honest there when you were talking about um, children learning your poems at school and that you would prefer or you or you would possibly choose other ones over the ones that, that are being given at the moment. You have a very uh, good way of um, being honest with the purpose of getting the best outcome. And I know that in our business, there's still some way to go in addressing the balance between men and women in certain roles. But you really did break through in the business at a time that was pretty male dominated. So I wonder, as a woman, did you have to find your voice to be able to push through in this business? Everybody has to find their voice, you know. Um, it wasn't particularly difficult to find my voice as a woman because I was a woman, you know, and I'm a woman. So, um, uh, you know, uh, people say, did it take courage? You know, a lot of people say that, my poems meant, like Val McDermott, who 
I don't think Luke's younger than me, but she has, she must be because she says that, you know, that somebody gave her a, a book of my poems when she was going to university. No, she's about a year or so or two years younger okay. than me. But, you know, and she says that my poems meant a lot to her. That, um, and, you know, and, and they sort of talk about it as if it must have taken courage. But, like, no. I mean, I never thought that I didn't have the right to try and write things if I wanted to. Uh, and, I mean, I, I was lucky in that I went to school um a school that, you know, didn't think of the girls as inferior to the boys in any way. In fact, but you had to, you had to kind of be up there alongside them. And, you know, I mean, I suppose um, I was busy at kind of um, stereotyping myself and saying I don't like maths. If I can't be top maths, I'll, I'll be last, you know. I was terrible for that kind of thing, getting 4% in second year maths and, think, you know, thinking this is not for me. No, yeah. I was stubborn in all kinds of ways, but... Um, no, uh, uh, it would take a lot more courage to try and live without um, writing anything um, for me because I would be really miserable um, uh, if I didn't, if I wasn't trying to do something. You know, I'm, I can't bake, you know, so um, I've not been doing the, I've not been doing the, my sister's been making lovely sourdough, lockdown sourdough and things like that. I keep t laughing at her and saying that she's a sort of, uh, that she's a complete lockdown cliche. The Cultural Coven is delighted to have musical support from singer-songwriter, musician, member of the Red Hot Chili Pipers, and very importantly, a fifer. Cameron Barnes. This song, Coming Home, and the rest of Cameron's music is available on all the main streaming platforms. So go on, download it and have a wee dance about your kitchen. Thanks Cameron for letting us use this tune. You were awarded and accepted the Queen's Medal for Poetry, which was so deserved, Liz. But please enlighten me, what was the Queen like? What did she say to you? She was fantastic. She was really interesting. She was quite, she was funny. She was quite good. I mean, you had to, you know, the, the equity and everything, they tell you to go in, that you've got to go two in, you've got to at least do a neck bow, three portions in and all this stuff. So I was with Caroline Duffy, who'd recommended me. She was the Poet Laureate at the okay. time. And uh, um, she made recommendations as to who should get um, the Queen's Medal for each year of her um, her reign, her 10 years. Um, uh, but, I mean, it did then go up to a set of academics who examined your work and decided whether or not they thought you were worthy of offering this lovely gold medal. It's beautiful, actually. Oh. It's very strange. Um, it's, it's scary, you know, to have it in your house. And I was a bit disappointed. It's not in a ribbon. You can't put it around your neck. I would have worn it today if I could. But, no, it's just a, a rather beautiful gold, heavy thing. Um, but uh, the Queen, uh, she said, you know, uh, you'd go in and I had to sit opposite the Queen. There's a sort of coffee table. It was almost like social distancing from her. And Caroline Duffy had to go off to the side and sit maybe, oh, more than, more than two stations away. She was um, about six stations away to the side. And the Queen said, um, um, do you ever get the giggles at poetry readings? And uh, I looked at Caroline and... Um, I said, well, we both do sometimes, of course. You know, sometimes things strike you as if somebody's on the stage with you and they're being very pompous or whatever, you know, you have to kind of not look at each other yes. and stuff. And she said, the Queen said, um, she said, well, 
um, Margaret, my sister and I, my Margaret was very naughty. She was much naughtier than I, but um, we were a naughty pair of children. We shouldn't have been at this poetry reading. Um, we were far too young, but uh, my and Pa took us along to this. And um, it was T.S. Eliot was there. Did you know him? I said, no, I never met T.S. Eliot. But she said, well, you know, he was very solemn. He was a very grey individual, you know. He was quite... Um, and Damien did sit well with there. And he said, she, yeah, she said about T.S. Eliot, he was rather nondescript. She said, but... Um, uh, uh, Edith Sitwell was there. Demi Edith Sitwell was there. And she was not nondescript. Well, Demi Edith Sitwell had an amazing kind of hooked nose and she wore great big uh, rings like eggs, you know, right. uh, great big that, you know, and she was very extravagant. And so she, she had a sort of amazing profile and she wore sort of turbans and wow. toques and uh, crazy, you know, uh, poems and things like that. You know, she was quite quite a character. She was one of the the Sitwells, the posh Sitwells. And she said, and then there was another lady poet there. She was she was very, very drunk. <laughs> and I, and we, Caroline and I looked at each other and she said, um, can't remember who she was. And Caroline suggested a few drunks that we knew. Oh, really? But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, she said, no, that wasn't who it was. So we never came up with who the drunk was. And she said, well, anyway, you know, she said, we got the giggles. We were terribly naughty. <laughs> we got the absolute giggles. But she was very good fun, the Queen. But it was a, a, a lovely mad day. Um, you know, something that I thought would never happen. Because I did meet the Queen very, very briefly at the opening of the Parliament building. Right. Um, but she sat there with her face like fizz. During, I, I had to do Edwin Morgan's poem at that. You know, I wasn't doing my own poem. Because Edwin Morgan wasn't, he'd written this... It was three minutes long, he said, but I couldn't get it down to under three and a half minutes. But I was rehearsing it down the phone uh, to London to Siobhan and she said, take your time, take your time. She said, what are they going to do, shoot you when you're on your feet? No, make it make sense. And I was going, but Eddie said he could do it in three minutes and he was making me say it faster and faster. I mean, I was rehearsing it in his, and she said, take your time, make it make sense. It was full of um, uh, tongue twisters, but it was quite a Republican poem. So, you know, it was quite um, pertinent. Sounds like an incredible moment and a really important moment in Scottish history. And I know that you're pro-independence like myself, but I think I was only really aware of what independence meant in the the run-up to the referendum. And I really researched it. Have you always been pro-independence, Liz? Where does that come from? No, no. At first, um, the SNP, when I was young, uh, I I voted Labour, you know, always. Um, And... uh, uh, I remember I was I didn't vote in the first referendum because I was away in Canada at the time. But my dad, who was a sort of centrist Labour, Labour Party voter, I think, he was sort of very um uh, uh you know, we'll be overgoverned and you know, there was sort of a sense of um that I wasn't really mad about the first, you know, referendum. I wasn't furious that I couldn't vote because I was away in Canada. But when I was in Canada, they were saying, What kind of country doesn't want more say in its own? Uh, affairs and so I gradually I'm not a na- I'm not a mad nationalist okay. I don't think one nation's I hate the the nationalist bit of nationalism you know um but being responsible for yourself is akin to feminism yes. to me feminism is not about hating men no, it's about taking responsibility for um yeah you know your own uh, complicity in certain things. So um, I'm not, although I will be voting, I'll be very much voting SNP 
Uh, probably SNP and SNP in both lists because I'm definitely not voting for uh, Alex Salmond no. after what he's done. I'm not voting no for that man in any way, shape or form. I don't think we should hurry into another referendum till we're well over um, COVID. And I think Nicola Sturgeon won't either. I've been full of admiration for the way she has dealt with the pandemic and her honesty as a human being. Um, I don't think you can act honesty. And uh, I believe that she cares about the things she talks about. I agree. uh, So, Les, we were talking there about the Queen and how you'd accepted a medal for poetry, which is attributed to you for your skills and your talent. Sometimes artists um, are reported to turn down MBEs and OBEs. If you were to be offered one, Les, would you accept one? Well, from what I hear about the process of OBEs and MBEs, both, I mean, uh, Jackie Kay has got an OBE or an MBE, I think it's, and so is Car- and, and Caroline Duffy, and Caroline's a dame as well. Um, and um, they're, you know, both of um, Republican kind of spirits as well. But um, from what I hear, you don't actually get offered an OBE or an MBE. You're apparently, allegedly, sent a letter um, uh, saying that were you to be offered this, would you accept it? Um, so, uh, and it's very bad form to say that you received that letter. Oh. Um, yeah, so I would never comment on such a thing were I to be ever um, offered such a thing, um, either in the past or uh, in the future. So, um, uh, and I'm not, I'm not really a big fan of owners, really. Um, and I think it was regarded as very bad form when, um, was it Benjamin Zephaniah said that he'd been offered an MBE or an OBE and that he wasn't taking it. Um, and uh, I would not do that either, you know, uh, because um, uh, I think they've got protocols for a particular reason. Um, but I accepted the Queen's Medal for Poetry because Edwin Morgan had, and so had various other people that I know that are um I think excellent poets and that you know that it was um peer valued by a, a jury of your peers. So it was lovely to get the, the Queen's Medal for Poetry, but it in a way it doesn't mean anything. We know it means something is writing another poem, you know, getting a poem done and thinking I'm not an ex-poet, I'm not a former poet, I'm a, an actual poet. But because you, you'd only feel like a poet when you've written a poem recently. Yes. So Les, we're going to move on to our creative challenge. And this week we're calling it, Have You Learnt Your Lines? So we've taken some lines from your own plays and poems and we would just like you to tell us what they are, where they're from and the character they were said by. So just a little bit of context. So number one is, Her hair is cut into that perfect slant, an innovation circa 64 by Vidal Sassoon. Well, that's um, uh, the female... um, 18, working class, uh, female, uh, art student, yeah, from um, a poem about 1966 uh, that I wrote for the, I wrote that for Caroline Duffy for a thing that she was uh, doing for the Queen. Um, Each year of the Queen's reign, uh, it was for the 60th anniversary of her birth. It was called Jubilee Lines, it was for the 60th Jubilee. And she gave us all a different year and she said, I don't want to hear that you've phoned up another poet and swapped years. You oh. take the one you're given. I've picked them out of a hat. Brilliant. 
Thank you. And you're correct. So the next yep. one. Oh. <laughs> so number two, Scotland. What lake is it? It's a peat bog. It's a dark forest. It's a cauldron lie. It's a salt pan or a coal mine. If you're gay lucky, it's a brecht bear meadow or a park okay. That's uh, Corby. That's the opening speech of Mary Queen of Scots. Corby's a crow, but she's also a sort of narrator. She's an immortal. She's somebody who zips in and out of the action. She tells the audience, come with me, I'll take you on this journey. So it's her version of the Mary Queen of Scots story. That's and uh, she should always be a female playing her. Number three is people are vile. Gosh. Is that from the one man Molly? Yes, it is the very vain Therese du Parc. Wow, yeah, she was a great character. She was just a brilliant character. Nothing like you as a person, I'm glad to say. Thanks. But something that you could play so beautifully. You know, she was somebody who she was sort of, she was a really annoying feminist. You know, she was sort of almost going around saying, I feel, you know, she was just really, really funny. Uh, she was very, very, very good uh, value. I loved writing her. Yeah, she was brilliant. I loved playing her. You were national poet of Scotland or Maca, um, from two thousand and eleven to two thousand and sixteen, which mm-hmm. is incredible and very well deserved. How does that come about? Do they make a selection and then tell you, or are you shortlisted or nominated? Um, I don't really know. I just got a phone call. Um, came into the house, uh, it was around about Burns Day uh, 2011 and this was just a few months after my husband had died and, you know, I just did a hard job getting out of the house and back into the house kind of thing. So I came back in with my groceries and uh, the phone was ringing so I picked it up and somebody said, I'm phoning from the government. We've been trying to get in touch with you. You've been trying to get into touch with you. And I said, oh, well, I've looked at my emails. There's nothing in this morning or anything like that. And they said, where have you been? And I said, I was out of the shops getting my messages, you know. And they said, well, the, the first minister's going to phone you in 15 minutes or 20 minutes. And I thought, oh, God. Because my friend Michael Mara had phoned me a couple of Sundays before and said, Liz, uh, it's in the papers today that you're, tipped to be the next you know because Edwin Morgan had died in 2010 yes. in the summer of 2010 it'd been a lifetime appointment for him oh. uh, but they but they decided that they wanted to make it a five-year appointment after that and uh, Jackie Key has just finished yes. her five years after me so um uh, yeah so just uh, this I sort of thought oh god so I had no idea what I was going to say. And I said, but I'm not going to be in. My sister's just about to pick me up. I'm going out for my tea. I'm, I'll be in a car. <laughs> um, you know, so I, was, I went downstairs and she was driving me around to hers. And I said, oh, God, I've given your number to um, the first minister. They're going to phone me in 20 minutes. And I said, oh, God, oh, God, I think they're going to, you know, ask me to be the national poet. Because I don't think they would phone up and say, you know, you were considered for this role and you didn't get it. We were so, you know, I thought, oh God, oh God. And I said, I have no idea. I don't know what, what will I say, Janice? What will I say? And she said, um, what would Tom say? And he would have been so proud of you, Liz. He was a, such a lovely man and he adored you. Well, it was easy to sort of say that he would have said, say yes. So I said yes. And, you know, I never regretted it because it got me working hard and, you know, going out to schools 
this back and forward. It was, it was, it was, it was. I did a lot of um, things that I really enjoyed doing were, during yeah. that five years. It was great fun. Uh, there's a long tradition in Scotland of playwrights adapting plays by 17th century playwright Mollier, who we've talked about, and mm-hmm. they've affectionately become known as the McMolliers. Yours must be one of, if not the most well-known in Scotland. But I'm interested to know what attracted you to Mollier over any other playwright. First, the phone call. I got a phone call from the Lyceum way back in 1983, I think, or 84. What happened was um, my friend Hugh Hodger, who was was going to be directing it, although he didn't in the end, it was uh, Ian Rodgers that did direct it. But um, they had been... uh, They'd taken over the Lyceum and they had um, a, a, a tattoo slated for it. But anyway, they'd done, uh, they had done the year before, he'd done a, a miser, a version of the miser. Well, the miser's not one of my favourite Moliere plays. It doesn't rhyme. There are three great rhyming ones. There's um, uh, The Misanthrope, uh, which I did as Misery Guts a good while later. But there's Tartuffe, which is probably the greatest one of them all. It's um, the funniest and the rudest. And uh, there's a school for wives, and they're all in rhyming couplets. Um, so, uh, but I'd said about the miser that uh, I didn't approve of just making the miser have a Scottish. Tam Dean Burn played the miser, and you know this. It seemed to me I was sort of going. It's this cliche to have you know the the miser Scottish, and therefore uh, you know. And, the, and, the, and his daughters and other people, not Scots. And so I said I would write, like to write a, a Moliere for um, a Scottish company. This is going to be in Scots. I said, oh, no, not in Scots, but for Scots with, you know, Scottish people to do in their own voices, their own accents. Yes. But when I started working on it, it was like really getting channeled by my granny. It just started to come through really quite broad Scots. Okay. You know, I, it was just weird. And I just started doing it and it just kind of, you know, almost uh, bits of it wrote itself. It was a weird experience. And I still like writing in Scots, but sometimes no two of them have been in the same kind of Scots. Mm -hmm. I think the most Scots is Tartuffe. Mm -hmm. It's kind of set in kind of 1920s, 1930s Scots, uh, kind of the language of my granny. Um, uh, Mary Queen of Scots got her head chopped off, which was a year later, is more of a mosaic of a language. It's like a, I think of it as like a, a patchwork quilt. So there's actually embedded bits of 15th century Scots and uh, Scots poetry and other things in amongst it. And uh, ballad Scots, you know, like the Corby, yes. you know, the Twa Corby's the ballad. And um, so it's a different kind of Scots again, but definitely quite Scots. And then... Uh, Misery Guts was just contemporary, rude and rhyming, Scottish-accented media people that effed and blind, effed and jeffed and blinded and so on. And uh, Jimmy was in that as well. You know, he was great as, uh, as, as you know, and that was a very different kind of Scots. And that was that was um, done in contemporary time as well, you know. And then uh, there was a, a School for Wives, which was, the language was very contemporary, but I wanted it to be set in the um, in the 16th, 17th century or whatever it was. So um, I've just done different things and there's slight Scots flavourings in my day, but, you know, I was, you know, definitely not. So, I mean, one, um, one of the drafts of the um, 
publicity for the National Theatre last year said in Scots and whatever. And I said, absolutely no way. People will think it's going to be in Gaelic or, yes. uh, you know, you know, it's not in Scots. Anyway, it's just in a slightly Scots-inflected English in that the King of Scotland you know, as a Scottish accent, you know, just because you're a king doesn't mean you have to speak RP, you know, yes. uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. So there's a sort of set of the, the Scots, the, the society is Scots inflected, Scots accented, Scots, you know, the, the, the princess of the realm is like a, a, you know, modern Scottish speaker of Scots, but she should have a Scottish accent and, mm. uh, you know, all that. So it's, it's uh, it's a movable feast. There's no such a thing. I don't believe in translating things into Scots. There's only there's only got to be a reason. There's got to be a sense of. I'm not interested in Scots. I'm just interested in language. Out of your characters, mm. who are you most like? Oh God, I've no idea. I've no idea. I would like to be. I would like to be like Corby. You know, uh, wise and. Uh, with an overview of history, uh, with an overview of history, but oh gosh, who am I like? I'm probably quite like the um, uh, the art student six, you know, eighteen, you know, whatever. Although my hair wasn't as good as her hair, uh, and so on, and, and never got the the look right as well as she did. Um, I'm probably very like uh, the the girl talking about Mary. Uh, but um, characters and plays, God, I don't know. No, you've got to put yourself into every single one. Mm. I mean, I really like um, my first real play, um, which um, was was called Blood Nice, and I wrote it and rewrote it several times. I really liked writing Byron. You know, and I'm nothing like Byron, but I loved writing him because he was such a bad boy. I wouldn't like to think I was like um, Mary in it because she's a bit of a frosty character, actually. Yeah. The, you know, she's she's one of I mean, yes, I feel sorry for her because she was, you know, put down by it. But um, I really like, uh, I really like the character of her sister. She would be more one for you to play. So, Liz, as you know, I've been reading your book, True Confessions, which is an early collection of your songs, your sketches and monologues, which I think everyone should get a copy of, by the way. Um, And as I mentioned, you write very strong female characters. And I noticed at the front, there's a dedication to your mum, says to Mum, Margaret and all the Mary Hellers. How important Uh, was your mum in your life? Did she influence your work? Yes, incredibly, absolutely incredibly. In fact, I mean, I managed to get a poem out, um, which had my mum in it recently, my most recent, my, my lockdown poem, the one that I couldn't write all last year. But what I always need when I can't write something is I always need another bit of information. And uh, I found out that um, uh, there's a Shakespeare quote that's now at the beginning of it. Uh, I've always loved this um, uh, quote. Um, uh, Shakespeare uh, said in, in, a, in Cymbeline, there's a song, Fear No More the Heat of the Sun. It's often read at funerals. Um, and it's just beautiful. But... Um, uh, I wrote this poem that I managed to get my mum into it. Oh. Uh, like, yeah, where is it? It's here. But anyway, this poem's called The Naming of Flowers Late May. And it just describes an actual event that happened last May, um, uh, whenever the dandelion clocks were out. Um, I was carrying, you know, I, I, I loved, I became fascinated by them. And I was painting them all the time. I was 
you know, the last of last year's dandelion clocks got painted last Sunday. There was one that had survived. It just went in the bin last Sunday after I managed to get it into a picture. But anyway, the naming of flowers late May. And it's got a wee epigraph from Shakespeare from Cymbeline. Golden lads and girls all must, as chimney sweepers, come to dust. A fool's errant to be carrying home this bunch of the dandelion clocks Shakespeare called chimney sweepers. And a friend tells me his here and now wee granddaughter calls puffballs. But I'm holding my breath and them this carefully because I want to take them home and try to paint them. Although one breath of wind and in no time I'll be stuck with nothing but a hank of leggy, limp, milky, pee-the-bed stalks topped with baldy wee green buttons. On Daisy Hill by the railway bridge, one lone pair of lovers lays in the sun. A little apart from her, he lounges, smoking a slow cigarette, and waits, smiling, half watching her weave a bluebell chain that swings intricate from her fingers, hangs heavy till she loops it, a coronet upon her nut brown hair. I'm wondering, is this to be her? Something blue? She calls out to me, I to her, as folk do in these days of distancing, and she asks me what I'm doing with the dead dandelions. I can hardly believe it when she says she never in all her childhood told the time by a dandelion clock. She's up to her oxters in oxide daisies, the ones my mother, Margaret, always called Marguerites, but never without telling me again how my father, writing to her from France before Dunkirk or after DD, always began his letters. Dear Marguerite, oh mum, who never got to be as old as I am now. Mum, how much I wish today I could ask you. Did you ever hear of this strange superstition this girl just told me? how a maiden crowned by bluebells can never tell a lie. Oh, that's beautiful, Liz. You oh, that. thank you. And it's about being the observer, the person looking, looking on at lovers and not being a lover anymore oh. and writing about them and looking at them and, you know. That's uh, so that's fine. I'll, I'll, I don't mind being in that position, uh, being in the position of being the... It's like the nurse in Shakespeare's plays or something. I was going to actually ask you something around that, Liz. Um, you might not have an answer to it. There's so many brilliant things about this business, but I do think with the pandemic, there is an opportunity to change things. Is there any one thing you think theatre should ditch going ahead? I think it should ditch trying to um, hedge its bets by casting people that will they think get bums in on seats they should have the right people for the roles mm. and um, of course they need to get bums in seats but you know um, uh, you know I think if for instance the National Theatre of Scotland want to do uh, My Medea as I hope they still do and as I hope it still happens surely um, uh, Michael Boyd's name Sir Michael Boyd who used to run the National Theatre um, you used to run the, the Royal Shakespeare Company. Uh, surely he and I will have big enough names without having, you know, to have other necessary, 
big names and big roles. But you, what I want is the people to be getting their chance to work, mm. you know, and that doesn't happen, especially, especially in television. You know, I think, what's her name, who played the Queen? She's a wonderful actress, but it's not fair that she gets every single part that's Olivia going. Coleman. Olivia Coleman. I love Olivia Coleman. But, I mean, I don't think Olivia Coleman wants to take everybody's job. So, Liz, I'm now going to move on to our quick-fire questions. So, as I always tell guests, these are the fundamentals on which I judge a person. Oh, right. Oh, God. I I might get (laughs) cancelled. So, I give you two options. And if you just fire back with your instinctive answers. TV or theatre? Oh, theatre. The Bard or Burns? That's too hard. I love them both. Um, Gun to your head. Um, uh, probably. I'll say, give me Burns then. Chippy sauce or no chippy sauce? Oh, chippy sauce, especially in Edinburgh. Yay. Sin or virtue? Oh, sin. Only fools and horses or faulty towers? Oh, faulty towers. This Very Molly-esque. The yeah. stalls or the royal box? Uh, the grand circle. <laughs> <That'd be awkward. laughs> oh, uh, yeah. That is where you sit normally. I forgot about that. I do I do like the grand No, the stalls would be not the royal box. Arthur Miller or Noel Coward? Uh, Noel Coward, actually, probably. I've got a comedic streak to me. City or countryside? It would have to be the city, yes. The slosh or the macarena? Oh, the slosh. Uh, I'm, I'm everybody's old auntie. I win. Uh-huh. <laughs> a buffy or a la carte? Oh, gosh. A la carte because buffies, I'm terrible at a buffet. I have a bit of everything and then I can carry, carry, my, carry my plate back to the table and I feel very embarrassed when I look at it. So <laughs> uh, a la carte would be better. Uh-huh. Camping or five star? Camping. Independence or no independence? Independence, but only because of taking responsibility for ourselves. You know, not nationalism, not um, not nasty nationalism, not here's to us, was like, as I'm better than you stuff. Fancy Nancy or dress down? Well, fancy Nancy. Yay. A night in or a night out? A night out. A night out. Land or sea? Oh, land. I get seasick. Beer or Bollinger? Oh, Bollinger. And that concludes the quick fire questions. Well, that was very revealing. <laughs> <laughs> and so am I still your friend? I'm yeah, still you, your friend, you pass, Liz. You pass. Oh, have I? That's all right then. That's so- all right then. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Liz, for coming and joining me in the Cultural Coven today. It's been an absolute delight to learn more about you and just see your lovely face. <laughs> I just love being in Lizzie's company. She's such a fascinating lady and she's done so much in her career. I just think she's amazing, really. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed your time in the coven with us. Why not join me next week when I'll be chatting to lovely Scottish actress and musician Saskia Ashdown, who's done some really hard-hitting and necessary theatrical work recently during a pandemic. So it's going to be a really interesting chat. Until then...